Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. I'd like to rebroadcast excerpts from a book reading given by former Tucsonan Barbara Kingsolver in May 2007. Barbara Kingsolver and her husband Stephen Hopp were in Tucson to share their new book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. The book chronicles a year in which their family vowed to eat only foods that were produced locally. Part memoir and part investigative journalism, the book encourages and inspires all of us to try eating locally and seasonally. The event was a benefit for Native Seed Search, a local nonprofit which works to protect crop diversity and to celebrate cultural diversity. Where does your food come from this year? Where will it come from next year? Stay tuned to 30 Minutes for Barbara Kingsolver reading from Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. Wow. I feel like I have the home court advantage here. Thank you so much for turning out tonight and um, for your devotion to um, Native Seed Search, if you are already a friend. And if tonight is your first donation to Native Seeds, um, I hope it will be the beginning of a long and beautiful relationship. It's so exciting to me to be back in Tucson. Um, I've In the last couple of weeks, I've been in, I'm sad to say, more cities than I can even remember. But uh, and every night I stand on a stage and I say, I'm so happy to be in your city. And I really do mean it, but I'm really happy to be in your city. This was my home, my family's home for more than 25 years. I came here when I was 23, expecting to stay a couple of weeks, uh, which just goes to show you that Life is what happens when you think you have it all under control. Um, and that this place has an incredible power to get under your skin. Um, it's been three years since we left. Uh, we, we moved back home for me, back to the place I come from, so that we could be near family. But I think about something from this uh, this area every single day. Um, I, I miss the five alarm sunsets. I miss the food. You know, it's, it's contrary to certain published reports, we did not leave Tucson so that we could eat. That's, that's a myth. That's only what people think when they read the first chapter of the book. Um, we, uh, um, besides Aside from people, I think what I miss most is Mexican food. So uh, I'll be on, a, on the prowl later on for some of our favorite Mexican food haunts. Um, but I'm going to read to you a little from this book that will fill you in on what I've been doing since I left Tucson. This is a co-authored book. It is... Um, and it's about the most important subject there is for any animal, including ourselves. And of course, that's food. Where it comes from, who made it, 
how it got here. I've been wanting to write this book for a really long time because I worry that I live in a culture, in a country, where people have forgotten how to ask those questions or why they should ask those questions. So this, um, the challenge was to figure out how to make it a good story. So this novel, I mean, this, uh, <laughs> this is a... <laughs> It's a nonfiction book, excuse me, but it had to be a good story. We had to figure out how to make it a good story. I wrote the narrative. My husband, Stephen Hopp, wrote, um, contributed uh, densely research, deeply researched sidebars on different um, topics related to food production. And our older daughter, Camille, who's now 20, wrote brief essays sprinkled through the, the book about um, sort of giving the teenager's point of view on this project of ours in which we tried to eat locally for one year. Uh, I'll be reading to you from um, my part of the book, and we have a... It, it will be interwoven with some images that um, Stephen, the, our, our family photographer took that will sort of help fill in the project. So here we go. Animal, vegetable, miracle. A year of food life. A fair definition of American food is that it typically travels farther than Americans do. Our average food item covers 1,500 miles to reach us. Because of industrial farming and food transport, we're now putting almost as much gasoline into our diets as into our cars. When my family moved from Arizona to a farming community in southern Appalachia, we were called there for many reasons, including extended family. But as long as we were headed for the promised land where water falls from the sky and green stuff grows all around, we decided to begin an adventure of realigning our lives with our food chain. Naturally, our first stop was to buy junk food and fossil fuel. In a cinder block convenience mart on the outskirts of Tucson on moving day, we foraged the aisles for road food. Our family's natural foods teenager scooped up a pile of energy bars big enough to pass as a retirement plan for a hamster. Our family's congenitally frugal mother shelled out two bucks for a fancy green bottle of about a nickel's worth of iced tea. As long as we were going crazy here, we threw in some 99-cent bottles of what comes for free out of drinking fountains in Perrier, France. In our present location, 99 cents was a bargain. Arizona was suffering the worst drought in its history, one inch of rainfall in the last seven months. The prickly pears looked ready to pull up roots and hitch a ride out if they could. The tall, dehydrated saguaros stood around all teetery and sucked in like very prickly supermodels. In the best of times, desert creatures live on the edge of survival. In the worst of times, even a desert can die of thirst. As we gathered up our loot on the counter of the convenience mart, the sky suddenly darkened. After 200 consecutive cloudless days, 
You forget what it looks like when a cloud crosses the sun. We all blinked. The cashier frowned toward the plate glass window. Dang, she said, it's going to rain. <laughs> I hope so, Stephen said. She turned her scowl from the window to Stephen. This bleach blonde guardian of gas pumps and snack food was not amused. It better not, is all I can say. But we need it, I pointed out. I am not one to argue with cashiers, but this was my very last minute as a Tucsonan. I hated to jinx it with bad precipitation karma. <laughs> I know that's what they're saying, but I don't care, she avowed. Tomorrow's my first day off in two weeks, and I want to wash my car. For 300 miles, we drove that day through desperately parched Sonoran badlands, chewing our salty cashews with a peculiar guilt. We had all shared this wish, in some way or another, that it wouldn't rain on our day off. Thunderheads dissolved ahead of us. In our desert, we would not see rain again. Now we are settled on a farm in southwestern Virginia, in a county where rain falls often, and we still celebrate it. A disastrously dry summer would mean neighbors losing their farms. It would affect school enrollments and local businesses. It's not a trivial difference, praying for or against rainfall during a drought. Historically speaking, humans tend to get what we wish for, what are the just desserts for a species too selfish or preoccupied to hope for rain when the land outside is dying? Should we be buried in our own clean cars to make room for wiser creatures? We'd surely do better, if only we knew any better. In two generations, we've transformed ourselves from a rural to a mostly urban nation. Most people of my grandparents' generation had merely an instinctive knowledge of agricultural basics, what vegetables grow well in one's immediate region, when they are in season, and how to live well on just those, with little else thrown into the mix beyond a bag of flour, a pinch of salt, and a handful of coffee. This knowledge is gone. We also have largely convinced ourselves it wasn't too important. The baby boom psyche embraces a powerful presumption that education is a key to moving away from dirt and manual labor, two undeniable ingredients of farming. It's good enough for us that somebody, somewhere, knows food production well enough to serve the rest of us with all we need to eat. If that is true, why isn't it good enough for someone else to know multiplication tables and the Bill of Rights? Isn't ignorance about our food causing problems as diverse and serious as our overdependence on petroleum and epidemic obesity? The multiple maladies caused by bad eating are taking a dire toll on our health most tragically for our kids, who are predicted to be this country's first generation to have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. That alone is a stunning enough fact to give us pause. 
So is a government policy that advises us to eat more fruits and vegetables while doling out subsidies not to fruit and vegetable farmers, but to commodity crops destined to become high fructose corn syrup and feedlot grain for cheap burgers. Many of us do understand that our food choices are politically charged, affecting arenas from rural culture to international oil cartels and global warming. Plenty of consumers are trying to get off the petroleum-driven industrial food wagon. This book is about how our family joined that small revolution trying to integrate food choices with our family values, which include both love your neighbor and try not to wreck every blooming thing on the planet while you're here. <laughs> Families in many other countries have food pledges hanging over their kitchens, subtle rules about cutting the pasta by hand, making with care instead of buying on the cheap. Though they also may be busy with jobs and modern life, people the world over still take time to follow foodways that bring their families happiness and health. My family happens to live in a country where the main foodway has a yellow line painted down the middle. If we needed new rules, we'd have to make our own, going on faith that it might bring us something worthwhile. This is the story of a year in which we made every attempt to feed ourselves animals, vegetables, and even minerals whose provenance we really knew. Our highest shopping goal was to get our food from so close to home we'd know the person who grew it. Often that turned out to be us as we learned to produce more of what we needed, starting with dirt, seeds, and enough knowledge to muddle through, or starting with baby animals and enough knowledge to refrain from naming them. 30 Minutes will continue with Barbara Kingsolver reading from Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life, from her Tucson appearance in May 2007. Our family had been growing a lot of our own food, um, even here in Tucson, as much as we could. Um, but we knew we were going to do that much more deliberately when we moved to our farm in Virginia. That first summer after our move was um, very occupied with remodeling a 100-year-old farmhouse, which had um, all kinds of problems, including a, a novelist with power tools. Um, <laughs> yikes. But we also um, found time to plant a modest garden, and we began investigating local farms, seeing what our neighbor farmers brought to the farmer's market. We were still at that point shopping uh, in a pretty conventional manner, getting most of our food from the grocery store. But um, even in the grocery store, we started looking closely at where things came from, looking for the most local sources we could find, uh, sources in our own region or even in our own county for things like honey, um, dairy products, 
uh, grain, whatever, whatever we could find from close sources. We also began working on our food skills, knowing that if we were not going to get processed foods from far away, we would need to try to learn to make uh, some of these things ourselves. Here we're making cheese with my Italian mother-in-law. Um, we decided on some ground rules for this year of local eating that we intended. We decided specifically we would still get a handful of things in small quantities from fair trade sources. Um, specifically, we would get coffee because I suspected my marriage might be at stake. Um, <laughs> If we could get it from a fair trade source so that we knew we were compensating the farmer fairly um, in a place where the farmer was protecting the habitat, uh, where the coffee was grown, also, also spices. Um, the, these things constituted such a minuscule proportion of our diet that um, we felt this would be a, a significant change in the food miles and in the um, sort of miles per gallon of our diet. The great majority, the bulk of what we eat is fruits and vegetables, um, dairy products, eggs, and meats. Our goal that we set for ourselves is that we would get all of our vegetables and fruits and meats from our own county, forsaking all California produce and so forth, for one full calendar year, and to get everything else as locally as we could. So. With our ground, our ground rules in place, um, we were all set to begin, but January 1st, when it came, <laughs> did not seem like such a good time to start. February didn't look a lot better. And even March, where we live, does not offer much in the way of green stuff growing out of the ground. Um, that it occurred to us that if we were going to do this for a full calendar year, we were going to have to get through some lean months sooner or later. That dog might start looking pretty tasty. No, just kidding, just kidding. I promise. Um, so when spring began to bloom again on our farm in March, this question was leaning on us really heavily. What are we waiting for? When do we start? We decided we were waiting for asparagus. It's the first vegetable to arrive in our in, in most temperate latitudes, um, and it really marks the beginning of the of the farming vegetable season in places that have cold winters. And so that's what we did. We started the second week of April when asparagus came up in our uh, on our farm. It was. Also the week the farmer's market opened. And frankly, in April, there's not a lot at our farmer's market, not a whole lot growing yet in our county, but April seemed still like a really hopeful time, a lot of color, a lot of greens. Um, so we began our year with a lot of salads and spinach frittatas. Um, we hunted morels in the woods behind our house. We devised possibly the world's first morel and asparagus pizza. And off we went, not doing so badly after all in our first week. 
We also began putting in what would essentially be a grocery store in our backyard. We intended to grow a lot of what we would eat ourselves, which raised for us questions we had never asked ourselves before, since we were not going to be going to the grocery store to get uh, produce in, in November or February. We had to ask ourselves, how, much, um, how many cabbages will we eat in a year? How much celery root? We had no idea, but we made our best guesses and planted a garden that was about 3,500 square feet, which is, um, it's, it's, well, here's the thing. That sounds huge to you. We never watered it once, okay? I know, unimaginable. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> But that's why we could do this. And it's, it's interesting. When I said that in, in Manhattan, 3,500 square feet, they're like, whoa, a million dollars worth of real estate. But <laughs> where we live, that's a very reasonable-sized plot for growing uh, a family's worth of food. We know some other people with gardens that are just about that big. Um, so off we went. It was the biggest patch of ground we had ever tilled. Um, but we put it in. We also decided we were going to manufacture local eggs, which, of course, raises the question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? And in our house, it was most definitely the chicken. Chapter 6, The Birds and the Bees. Our postmistress sounded unfazed on the morning she called to say, you better come get this package. It's making a pretty good racket. We rushed down to the P.O. for the package with my daughter's name on it, a little cardboard mailing crate with dime-sized holes on all sides and 28 voices inside, the noise density quotient of one kindergarten packed into one shoebox. <laughs> Lily picked it up and started crooning like a new mother. This date had been circled on her calendar for months. April 23rd, my baby's due. It's hard to overstate her fondness for chickens. Other eight-year-old girls have Barbie posters on their bedroom walls. Mine had a calendar titled, The Fairest Fowl. <laughs> One of the earliest lessons in poultry husbandry I had to teach Lily was why we don't kiss chickens on the mouth. Her plan now was to start her own egg business, not just to help feed the family, but to earn money. As the business began to take shape in her mind in recent weeks, Lily had even determined she was going to save enough money to buy a horse. She had been asking me questions lately about the price of horse flesh. Just a regular mare or a gelding, she added, to be perfectly clear. When it comes to mares and geldings, she knows the score. I had heard her explaining this to some of her friends in the back seat of the car one day as I was driving. A stallion, she said, is a boy that's really fierce and bossy. Her little friends were wrapped. But they can give them an operation that makes them gentle and nice and helpful, you know, like our daddies. <laughs> Okay, then. She knew what she was looking for. 
We knew the chicks were coming this morning, so I allowed her to stay home from school to wait for the call. Once she'd brought her chicks home and started their new life under her care, Lily was ready to get back to third grade. When we signed her in at the principal's office, the secretary needed a reason for tardiness. Lily threw back her shoulders and announced, I had to start my own chicken business this morning. The secretary said without blinking, oh, okay, farming, and entered the code for excused agriculture. <laughs> Just another day at our elementary school. I had my own poultry project underway already, 15 baby turkeys, which had arrived by mail the previous week. That one shoebox of fluff plus grain, grass, and thyme would add up to some 300 pounds of our year's food supply. We decided that if we meant to eat anything, meat included, we'd be more responsible tenants of our food chain if we could participate in the steps that bring it to the table. You can leave the killing to others and pretend it never happened, or you can look it in the eye. Our turkeys would enjoy freedom, sunshine, and the company of their kind. And some of these birds would survive the holidays if all went according to plan. Our goal was to establish a breeding flock. These were some very special turkeys. Of the 400 million turkeys Americans consume each year, more than 99% of them are a single breed, the broad-breasted white. A quick-fattening monster bred specifically for industrial-scale turkey farming. These are the big lugs, so famously dumb, they can drown by looking up at the rain. If one of these escapes slaughter, it probably won't live to be a year old. They get so heavy, their legs collapse. They are incapable of flight, foraging, or mating. That's right, reproduction. Genes that make turkeys behave like animals are of no use to a creature packed wing to wing with thousands of others and might cause it to get cranky or suicidal. So those genes have been bred out of the pool. Docile lethargy works better and helps them pack on the pounds. This trend holds for all animals bred for confinement. In the case of the breast-heavy, broad-breasted whites, the scheme has left them with a combination of deformity and idiocy that renders them unable to have turkey sex. Poor turkeys. So, how do we get more of them? Well, you might ask. The sperm must be artificially extracted from live male turkeys by a person a professional turkey sperm wrangler, if you will, and artificially introduced to the into the hens, and that is all I'm going to say about that. Except that if you think they send them to a men's room with a little paper cup and play hen magazine, that's not how it goes. I will add only this. If you are the sort of parent who threatens your teenagers with a future of unsavory jobs when they ditch school... Here's one more career you might want to add to the list. When our family considered raising turkeys, we were not going to go there. I was intrigued by what I knew of heritage breeds, especially after, the, after Slow Food USA launched its campaign to reacquaint American palates with the flavors of heritage turkeys.
All the special qualities of heirloom, tur- heirloom vegetables are found in heirloom breeds of domestic animals, too. Hundreds of varieties of turkeys, chickens, sheep, pigs, and cattle that were well known to farmers a century ago, but whose numbers have declined nearly to extinction. In addition to special flavors, these breeds retain more of their wild ancestors' genetic diversity, disease resistance, and sense about foraging in the pasture rather than enduring life in a windowless metal house. Heritage animal listings have the same literary allure as heirloom seed catalogs. Your Tennessee fainting goats, your Florida cracker cattle, and eight kinds of heritage turkeys. We picked the bourbon red. Fewer than 2,000 of these birds still exist in breeding flocks. Slow food employs the paradox of saving rare rare breeds by getting people to eat them. In its 2003 Ark of Taste turkey project, so many people signed up for heirloom Thanksgiving turkeys instead of the standard butterball, an unprecedented number of U.S. farmers were called on to raise them. The demand has continued since then, so we jumped on that wagon, hoping to have our rare birds and eat them too. You've been listening to Barbara Kingsolver reading from Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. The book chronicles a year in which her family vowed to eat only local foods. This was a benefit for Native Seed Search, a local nonprofit which works to protect crop diversity and to celebrate cultural diversity. I'm Amanda Shager. Stay tuned for a very special edition of A View from Slightly Off-Center on 91.3 KXCI Tucson.